Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOTN. This week, we're going over UFC San Antonio, headlined by a banger of a bantamweight matchup between Marlon Vera and Corey Sanhagen. Very fun matchup there between two high action, high output fighters, and that will very much determine who is up there in terms of being in the title hunt, uh, especially with Aljamain Sterling taking on Henry Cejudo. Uh, I believe that fight's going down in May, uh, and this will likely determine you know, whether Sanhagen gets another crack or if Chito Vera finally gets that long-awaited title shot that he's been clamoring for. Co-main event, we got Holly Holm coming back against the returning Yana Santos, but we also have another couple interesting matchups on this card, which again, going down in San Antonio and in front of a live crowd, I'm very excited to see, uh, you know, it's always fun to see UFC cards in front of a crowd, especially during this COVID era uh, and with them now starting to move away from using the Apex. Austin Lingo versus Nate Landwehr in front of a crowd. Come on! A lot of great matchups to look forward to. Quickly going over UFC 286. What a performance by Leon Edwards to go out there and retain the title over Kamaru Usman. I really expected Usman to showcase what he had showcased over... 90% of the fights that they've already had together, the two previous fights they had, he's controlling majority of those fights with his grappling, with his wrestling, but it was clear that Leon Edwards worked on all of that this time around as he was able to stuff the majority of takedowns and work right back to his feet whenever he did get taken down and utilizing a kick-heavy approach that was able to keep Kamaru Usman at distance and kept him apprehensive in terms of closing that distance and trying to get that wrestling going more. Hats off to Leon Edwards. I uh, long expected or, or long said that Kamaru Usman was the best welterweight on the planet. And although Bellator might also have something to say about that with Yaroslav Amosov, I believe that Leon Edwards deserves his flowers and is more than rep or more than perfect of being the UFC champion at this point in time. That was my lock of the night uh, prediction as well with Kamaru Usman as I thought that minus 245-ish range that we were getting was not a bad spot, especially considering the level that Kamaru Usman is at, but I was dead wrong in that spot. That is back-to-back lock of the night spots for the UFC that has faltered for your boy. I got to be a little bit better in terms of not going up against other talented fighters, right? Went up against Marab last week with Piotr Jan, went up against Leon Edwards this week. There are so many other easier spots on the card that I could have honed in on. Uh, again chalky or not we're just trying to get these lock of the night predictions down and uh, hopefully come through for you uh, 2-0 on lock of the night predictions on the regional shows the two regional shows we had this past weekend so that brings the yearly total now for lock of the night predictions to 25-4 and four. so still pretty damn good I must say myself dog of the night prediction this week was Mohamed Mokhaev and Jafel Filio to go over two and a half rounds that's exactly what ended up happening even with Mokhaev getting that last minute or dying seconds uh, submission victory that he got but we still got that over two and a half so happy to go with that one and ones on dog of the nights for the regional shows uh, which pushes the dog of the night record now to 14 and 15 but the predictions on the regional shows were just off the chain this past weekend going I believe it was 13 and one or 14 and one only got one wrong between cage warriors 150 and pfl challenger series week eight luckily there are four regional events going down this weekend all the breakdowns for every single one of those fights can be found on the patreon link in the description below a ton to get through this weekend fury fc 76 lfa 155 cage warriors 151 and the european series of the pfl their first regular season event takes place this weekend as well again on the patreon check the link in the description below not to mention you get early breakdowns and all the other events the bellators and ufc's all getting broken down nice and early on the patreon so people can take advantage of some of those openers and some of those early lines that start to get steamed as fight week starts to go on or wait I already dropped the lock of the night prediction and dog of the night prediction way before this podcast even came out. And again, the Patreon members benefited from that. All right, let's not waste too much more time. There are a ton of fights to get through here, 13 to be specific. So let's get right into them. Kicking things off in the women's bantamweight division, we got 7-2 and two Haley Cowan going up against 7-1 and one Tamiris Vidal. 
Starting off on the Haley Cowan side, she was scheduled to fight a couple weeks ago against Eileen Perez. Unfortunately, Cowan came down with some sort of illness on fight day, or I believe it was the day before, that forced her to pull out of that fight. But luckily, the UFC quickly got her back on schedule, and she's taken on Tamiris Valdez Vidal this weekend. Cowan coming over from the LFA scene was highly touted even before making her professional MMA debut, but she falls she fell short a couple times and the steam from her name really started to wear off after seeing that her ceiling is likely a lot lower than people originally expected it. She was an Olympic gymnast uh, or at least a high-level gymnast, uh, which is why you see a lot of her athleticism translate well to the UFC. She utilizes her strength and her power very well in terms of pushing women up against the cage, dragging them to the ground, and having good success from on top. I'm a little bit surprised that she's not more or at least more so leaning on her striking and her movement a little bit more, considering that she does seem to have good success from trotting around on the outside of her opponent's distance and landing some good shots from the outside. However, it seems like over and over again, she always tries to get fights into that grappling position where she's able to take points to the ground and impose her world from on top. However... It's caused fights to be a lot closer than they should be, as well as the fact that she's gotten caught in a couple of submission uh, losses now as well. So at 31 years old, I'm curious to see if we're going to see any further improvements from her or even a confidence from her in her striking realm. Going up against her this weekend is Tamiris Vidal, who had a successful UFC debut against Ramona Pasquale, where she knocked her out with a flying knee to the solar plexus. That was the night where uh, Pasquale, well, I believe she got cut from the UFC after that matchup. But a lot of people expected Pasquale to put on a pace and was going to be able to take Vidal to the ground and grind her out. However, Vidal did a very good job in terms of keeping that fight upright. And she even had a lot of clinch success of her own in the early goings of that matchup before she uncorked that flying knee and was able to get her hand raised. She's a BJJ brown belt, and I gotta be honest, I am not the most impressed with what I saw from her on her regional tape. She has one loss, which was her second professional fight, to now UFC fighter Carol Hosa. But she did actually lose or win a fight by DQ over Eileen Perez on the regional scene, and Perez was, let's be honest, she was really having her way with Tamiris Valdel Vidal without uh, throughout that entire matchup. Uh, but Perez consistently fouled Vidal whether it was eye pokes or shots down low knee to the grounded opponent or knee to the head of a grounded opponent and that ultimately ended up costing Perez that win and she ended up getting DQ'd that night so Vidal technically only has one loss on her record uh, the only performance I was very impressed with her by was her fight against Martina Jindrova on the regional scene that was this fight where she was able to get the fight to the ground over and over again and Jindrova had a lot of trouble in terms of working back to her feet. Jindrova obviously had the striking advantage in that matchup, but was unable to showcase it as Vidal did a great job of continuously grounding that fight. I think that Vidal, with her BJJ brown belt, will be looking to ground fights more often than not, but she has still a lot of work to do in terms of her technical striking acumen, uh, but I just don't know how high her ceiling is. Let's not be too critical considering the fact that she's still only 24 years old. But at this stage of her career, she's going to have to shore up a lot of aspects of her game if she hopes to get her hand raised at this level. Even though Haley Cowan was the one that had to pull out of her matchup last time around, which was scheduled to take place a couple weeks ago, I still think that this is a great matchup for her to go up against Tamir's Valdo. Tamiris Vidal, where she should be able to overpower her with her strength, drag this fight to the ground, stay safe enough from the BJJ brown belt of Vidal, grind this fight out. But what I would like to see from her more is what I alluded to in her background, is the striking style. I think she is the far superior striker here, and not like a... Okay, far superior might be an exaggeration because Vidal does throw with some heat. But technically speaking, I think with the footwork, movement and distance management of Haley Cowan and speed advantage that she'll be enjoying in this fight, she should be able to touch up Vidal from distance without any issue. So this line is way too wide, in my opinion. Plus 190 by the time I'm recording this. I'm just assuming there'll be some action throughout fight week. But I think that this is a great spot for Haley Cowan to get a win in her UFC debut. We got flyweights up next with the 11-2 Victor Altamirano going up against 14-4 Vinicius Salvador. Starting off on the Victor Altamirano side, he's coming off a knockout victory over Daniel Da Silva in his second UFC matchup. And that was a great fight for him in terms of showcasing his durability and the ability to battle back from adversity. 
De Silva had a lot of success early in that fight by hurting Alto Moreno a couple times and even had a close submission opportunity. However, Alto Moreno kept his composure about him, got out of those bad positions, and eventually grounded De Silva, where he was able to lay down some huge ground and pound, eventually getting the stoppage from the referee. Alto Moreno is a solid flyweight who had some good success on the LFA regional scene as well before getting his opportunity on the contender series. And although it was a close fight with Carlos Candelario, the UFC decided to give both of them a contract to the UFC, which is how Alto Moreno ultimately made it to this level. He came up short against Carlos Hernandez in his UFC debut in a very close split decision loss, but I do think that there is more to Alto Moreno's game than that fight showcased as we obviously saw in the Daniel De Silva fight. Alto Moreno, technically speaking, still has a little bit of work to do in terms of his boxing, but he has a solid kicking game where he utilizes it quite often, stays heavy with the volume, stays uh, trotting on the outside, and do, does a good job in terms of moving around. Uh, but the one flaw in his game is probably his takedown defense. Almost every opponent that's been able to attempt a takedown on Alto Moreno gets the fight to the ground. However, he's done a very good job in terms of working back to his feet, creating scrambling opportunities so that he can get back to his handiwork, or I should say his footy work. <laughs> I think that he's a solid prospect, but at 32 years old, he really has to get things going right now, especially if he hopes to get into the rankings and if he ends up or hoping to try to get that UFC gold just as he got that LFA gold. On the flip side for Vinicius Salvador, he's coming off a very solid finish on the contender series, which earned him a contract to the UFC. And that was a fight where he actually ended up coming in as the underdog. Now, he was scheduled to fight Vinicius, or sorry, uh, Daniel De Silva uh, a couple months back, but I believe it was uh, Daniel De Silva who botched his weight cut, forcing that fight to get canceled the day before the card, and Vinicius ended up getting rescheduled for this matchup here against Victor Altamoreno. But just as much fireworks as that last matchup had uh, promised, this fight probably promises the same. Both of these guys prefer to strike, and I'm curious to see how Vinicius' style will translate in this matchup. One thing that I picked up on a lot during uh, the the viewing of Vinicius's regional tape was that, uh, you know, I, obviously I can't understand Portuguese, but the one thing I kept understanding was Anderson Silva. And it makes sense because, you know, you do see flashes of Anderson's game in Vinicius. And I don't mean to the extent that this guy's going to go out there and be one of the greatest flyweights of all time, but he uses a lot of head movement. He uses a lot of like unorthodox and flashy moves to put that heat on his opponents, eventually finding that knockout and getting his hand raised. A lot of his wins have come via knockout, and he has shown that he can go up against solid competition even on the regional scene, which I think is going to be very valuable experience for him, especially coming into the UFC. His last loss came to Jafel Filio, who just fell to the hands of Mohamed Mokayev this past weekend, but I think that showcases that Salvador, like I said, has faced solid competition on the regional scene, and I think that will have him more than prepared for going up against the level of competition he'll be facing in the UFC. This one's a very tough one to call because I'm a fan of both guys and they kind of have similar styles, a lot of kicking, a lot of unorthodox movement. But I do end up leaning with the Salvador side here as I believe, technically speaking, with his defense, I think he's a little bit better. I think he'll be able to get away from a lot of the big shots from Alto Moreno. I think he'll be able to come back with some big unorthodox strikes of his own. But the spot that I like the most that I'd be honing in on would be the over one and a half. I think both guys have decent enough defense. I think Salvador a little bit better than Alto Moreno but I think that both guys are going to be throwing a lot of shots and not landing with the most amount of uh, power or enough finishing power to get this fight to be stopped especially in the early goings which will likely see this trickle into the late parts of the second round and even the third round I lean with Salvador being the one like I said getting off the better shots and I think he ends up taking home the decision victory Next up in the lightweight division, we have Manuel Torres coming in with a 13-2 and record. He's going up against Trey Ogden, who comes in with a 16-5 and record. Starting off on the Torres side, he made an emphatic UFC debut when he knocked out Frank Macho in a beautiful performance where he showcased his power striking and was able to eventually find that chin of Camacho and put him down and out. He earned his spot on the UFC roster by winning via knockout on the contender series over Colton Unglin, although that fight riddled with some controversy due to the fact that it seemed like Torres actually poked England in the eye, but the referee did not see it, allowing the fight to continue, and Torres was able to take advantage and quickly knocked him out 
quickly thereafter. But Torres, there's a lot of question marks still. Even though he's had 15 professional fights, there's only you know a couple fights worth of footage on him throughout uh, you know throughout my research, which I was able to find, and I wasn't really impressed from what I saw especially considering the fact that one of his losses was via heel hook. You know, that was a fight that took place less than or just about four years ago. And uh, he found himself on the ground and quickly caught up in a, you know, footsie battle. And he ended up getting tapped via heel hook. That's not going to cut it at this level. And obviously, we got to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's probably making improvements ever since that matchup. But facing high-level black belts and higher levels of competition on the UFC scene, if he has any sort of chink in the armor in terms of his grappling defense, it's going to be fully taken advantage of. Obviously, it's going to be tough to close that distance with his 73-inch reach and 5'10 frame, uh, especially with the amount of uh, heat and power that he throws with, just as Frank Camacho has found out. But from the tape that I was able to find outside of that heel hook loss that he has, not a lot of opponents have really pushed him in the grappling realm or at least try to chase after it with a little bit more abandon than you know Frank Camacho and England were able to. They went for takedown attempts, but it seemed very half-hearted. And those guys really aren't known for their takedown games. And I'm curious to see what Manuel will react or how he will react against guys looking to actively get him to the ground and nullify that punching power that he brings to the table. Going over to the Trey Ogden side, he is no stranger to pulling off the upset against Mexican prospects. And that's exactly what he did last time around against Daniel Zellhuber. He went out there and pitched a perfect matchup by de- uh, outpointing Zellhuber over 15 minutes and pulling off an upset victory, which I believe he came in as a near plus 300 underdog. Almost nobody was picking him to win that matchup, but he showcased great discipline, a good game plan, and sticking with it, and eventually that was enough for him to get his hand raised by decision. He utilized a plethora of leg kicks and mixed in some opportune grappling moments for himself where he was able to get the eye of the judges and allow them to score that fight in his favor. A lot of people wrote him off after he lost that fight to Jordan Levitt. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that fight... Actually, no, it did not come in on short notice. But that was not the Trey Ogden that a lot of people were used to, especially from what he was able to put together on the regional scene. And I'm glad that he reminded people that he's not some guy that's just going to be known as the guy that got lost to Jordan Levitt via decision. Uh, And I think that he has way more to showcase than what he showed in that fight. He has good striking, good game plan, good fight IQ in my opinion as well. Uh, And I think that he has a very good game plan going into this matchup to pull off a victory himself. But, uh, you know, like I said, BJJ black belt, very good striker as well. uh, Very intelligent. And I look forward to seeing how he's going to solve this puzzle of Manuel Torres this weekend. Maybe by the time you guys view this video, the line may not be as good as it was when I got it, but plus 170 on Trey Ogden is egregious. And I think that has a lot to do with the recency bias and people still holding on to the fact that Trey Ogden has a loss to Jordan Levitt on his record. Manuel Torres obviously made very good on his UFC debut by knocking out Camacho. And I think that is playing into this line here. People are just seeing him as this guy that goes out there and gets finishes and he's going to wreck everybody, or at least the first couple fighters that he fights in the UFC. Whereas Ogden is still trying to get that respect from the UFC fans and the betting public. But plus 170, I'd be surprised if this number is hanging around by fight time. I'm expecting it to go way down. But at the beginning of the week, which is why I'm glad you guys are getting this at the on Monday, uh, this is a great dog spot. I think that Ogden is far superior here. He showcased even in his last fight that he can go out there and spring the upset as a major underdog. Not as big of an underdog this time around, but should still be able to go out there, stay away from the big looping shots of Manuel Torres, make him whiff a little bit, make him start sucking wind a little bit, and then eventually change levels get this fight to the ground and utilizes bjj black belt i'm gonna go trey ogden great money line underdog already but trey ogden by submission i'm gonna be honing in on that prop later this week and obviously look for that as possibly one of my three best prop bets on friday but i really like trey ogden in this spot feeling damn good about it as well it's been a while since i felt this good about an underdog hopefully ogden comes through on my feelings as well Heading back down to the flyweight division, we got 10-4-1 CJ Vergara going up against 11-4 Daniel Da Silva. Starting off on the CJ Vergara side, he's coming off of a fight where he missed weight and then eventually got tapped by Taitsura Tyra in the second round of his matchup. 
That was a fight following a very big upset that he pulled off against uh, Clayton Rodriguez, where he, you know, dealt with a very uh, tough and aggressive Clayton early, managed to battle through it, and eventually come through in the second and third rounds, where he was able to have his own success, eventually getting his hand raised by decision. He's a solid Muay Thai striker with good uh, knowledge in terms of when to take advantage of his opponent's openings and weaknesses. But as an overall skill level, I just don't know if he has what it takes to eventually get ranked in this UFC flyweight division. I think the Clayton Rodriguez win is likely going to be the pinnacle of his career as he continues to fight fighters that are just going to be way too much better or way better than him. You know, not just skillfully, but physically speaking as well. I think he lacks in the physical and athleticism department a little bit, which will probably be the shortcoming of his career at the UFC level. Obviously, he's going to have to make weight this weekend if he wants to stay in the good graces of the UFC. But even better yet, he needs to get his hand raised. Otherwise, on a two-fight losing streak from a fighter that ended up missing weight, I don't know if his future in the UFC is going to be something to hold on for a long time. But... I don't mind everything that I've seen from him from an overall perspective. I got to say that his strength is going to be his cardio and his striking, but the rest of his game could still use a little bit of work. On the flip side for Daniel De Silva, clearly fighting for his job as he's on a three-fight losing streak here, all coming via stoppage. I'm surprised the UFC has decided to give him another shot here, but considering all of his fights have been very entertaining, I think the UFC enjoys the fact that he wants to go out there and either get the kill or get dragged out on his shield. And I think that's why the UFC has decided to give him a fourth shot and maybe the relationship that De Silva has with former lightweight champion Charles Oliveira that could possibly play into it as well. Daniel is exactly what you expect from his uh, record. I think he's only ever been to the third round once in his 15-fight career, and he's usually going out there and getting the finish within the first round of uh, his fights. He's a very solid striker with a lot of explosiveness and a lot of power early and a very active guard game when he's put on his back. But he very much struggles when opponents uh, are able to endure that early onslaught and eventually finish him later on. He's had seven victories in the first round on the regional scene, but it clearly comes at a cost as when opponents are able to battle through that, like I said, they're able to get the finish. Uh, Again, he's very aggressive, very tough to deal with in the first three to four minutes of fights, and I think that's kind of the window that he has. I don't think that this is a fighter that we're going to go out there and see a completely different game from coming this weekend. I think he's going to stick with what got him to the dance, and he might have a better opponent this weekend to try to pull it off against. This is going to be an ugly fight, and I'm going to take that shot on Daniel Lacerda or Daniel De Silva, whatever you want to call him. I think that speed, explosiveness, and power advantage he's going to have in this matchup is going to play out how the Clidson Rodriguez fight should have played out with Rodriguez getting an early stoppage over Vergara. Vergara has shown some durability and has been shown to show off his toughness and grit, but I think he's going to struggle to deal with that early uh, onslaught that he's going to deal with De Silva here. You know, De Silva, three losses in a row. Gotta believe he likely gets cut with the loss here. So I think that we're going to see a little, you know, we'll likely still see his reckless style, but I think it might be a little bit more calculated here. Looking for those openings, taking advantage of those openings, and then slapping on a, I'm going to say maybe a submission here. But De Silva round one, probably the best way to go about it. Uh, Obviously, you'll get a much better line on Vergara the deeper that this fight goes. So I wouldn't take that heavy chalk on him pre-fight. I would wait for that first round to finish. He is for sure going to be you know a better line than he was uh pre-fight going into that second round uh but i don't know if this fight even reaches that second round fight doesn't go to decision probably the best spot it's probably going to be chalky as hell i'm expecting the under one and a half to be chalky as hell as well considering that daniel de silva has shown his cards right this guy goes out there either gets that early finish or gets finished himself and i think that's going to hold true once again in his fourth ufc matchup but i think he finally gets his hand raised here so big underdog in this spot i'm going to go daniel de silva first round i'm going to call it via club and sub moving up to the welterweight division we got a great fight here between trevin giles who comes in with the 15 and 4 record he's going up against the 10 and 3 preston parsons Starting off on the Trevin Giles side, this is going to be his third trek to the octagon as a welterweight, and so far he's split his last two matchups 
the first of which against Michael Morales. He had some decent success of his own, but ultimately got knocked out by Michael Morales and uh, showcased that maybe there are some issues with Trevin trying to make this 170-pound weight class on a regular basis. In his next matchup, he had a very pedestrian fight against Luis Cosi, which you know didn't see a lot of action in the early going of that fight, but Trevin did enough in those first two rounds to get his hand raised, and he got taken down almost immediately in the third round of that fight, managed to eventually work back to his feet with about two minutes to go, has some success of his own, but I still have a lot of question marks in terms of what his energy levels are going to be like, what his gas tank is going to be like, especially deep in fights when he's forced to push a pace. I just don't think he can totally master this cut to 170 pounds. Uh, You know, this is a guy that used to fight at 205 pounds as well. Obviously, the majority of his MMA career or UFC career was spent at middleweight. But this is a big guy trying to consistently make 170 pounds. And I just think at a certain point, it's going to start to be more of a deterrent than it is an actual positive for him to have this height and reach advantage over his welterweight opponents. But he is very skilled, and when he is on, he has a lightning-fast jab that he can follow up with a nice two down the pipe, and that's usually when he has his best uh, performances, when he can move around the cage, utilize his footwork, but then utilize that just range and, and that jab down the middle to keep his opponents at bay. The speed is the most important factor of that because a lot of opponents are just, you know, they're anticipating it and before they know it, they end up getting hit with another one and that causes them to get frustrated and eventually break and that's when Giles is is able to run away with the fight. It's unfortunate that he's gotten knocked out in two of his last three matchups, but he has a lot to prove in this matchup against Preston Parsons who, you know, still is looking to cement a spot of his own on the UFC roster. Last time around, Preston Parsons won a decision victory against Evan Elder in a fight that a lot of people, including myself, expected to finish inside the distance. Because that's mainly, that's how Preston Parsons has won the majority of his matchups by finishing his opponents, getting them to the ground quickly and looking for a submission or an opportunity to posture up and land some big ground and bound. He had a lot of finishing opportunities against Evan Elder and had some very tight chokes some elder was able to get out of some elder was lucky that the bell was able to save him but preston was continuously getting into that dominant position to eventually get that submission my big question mark about parsons going into that elder fight was what does his cardio look like we see him go out there and consistently finish his opponents early but what if he is pushed into the third round and he's not able to finish his opponent and i gotta say i was kind of impressed from what i saw you know, he still went out there, landed takedowns, and there were opportunities where Elder was able to get back to his feet, but Parsons was able to put him right back on his back. And, you know, even with all the squeezing and submission attempts that he had, he still had the gas tank to go out there and put on a good performance over 15 minutes. I'll cut him some slack for the Daniel Rodriguez loss, which is a fight that he took on short notice and was a massive step up in competition for him. But I think he has some, he has a little bit of. Uh, potential like especially with this relentless grappling style and i'm looking to see how effective it would be when he implements it this weekend i have a lot of apprehension investing in fights involving trevin jaws until we see what he actually brings to the table at this welterweight division again not too much to take away from his last fight against Luis Cosi. He was having a little bit of success against Morales, but still, I need to see more to see can he handle a welterweight pace, especially with the guy like Parsons, who's going to be pushing him the entire time. I like what I see from Parsons, and I had question marks about his own cardio uh, management and gas tank going into his last fight against Evan Elder, but he showcased he can go 15 minutes if he needs to, and I think that's what he can end up doing here. I think he could even find a finish in the latter half of this matchup. So I'm going to go press parsons to win this fight with his relentless grappling and inevitably a finish from that top dominant position moving down to the featherweight division we got texas's own steven peterson making his return to the cage with a 19 and 10 record he goes up against lucas alexander who comes in with a 7 and 3 record Starting off on the Peterson side, he's coming off a loss to Julian Arosa just over a year ago in a kind of a back and forth matchup where Peterson had a little bit of his own success, but it was ultimately Julian Arosa's output and range management which was able to get him the match or the win in that matchup. Peterson is a tough and gritty veteran and will be entering his 30th professional MMA fight this weekend, and he'll always be that guy lingering around the you know lower level to average level or medium level of the of the UFC's featherweight division just based off of his grittiness his toughness and his experience 
throughout this guy's career since you know the early stages of it he's been fighting high level opponents and that's what has gotten him ready and uh gotten him to the ufc level because he can go out there and continuously have solid uh, uh performances even in fights that he ends up losing uh he beat chase hooper and that's something that's always gonna uh stick with me considering that that was one of my sharper spots in my predicting uh career uh, but I was very happy to see how he dealt with that fight. And even when that fight got mixed up on the ground, he showcased that he could stay safe enough to still uh, stave off of the majority of submission threats that Chase Hooper was throwing up. But the reality is Steven Peterson will ne- likely never take that next step in the UFC's uh, featherweight rankings because he's always going to be just, he's going to be capped with some of the the skill deficiencies that he has. He's tough, he's gritty, he has some good striking, he moves forward, he doesn't mind taking damage, he's very durable, and that will always be the shining parts of his game. But that's not the parts that you want to rely on when you're at the UFC level. Even in fights that he ends up winning outside of the Chase Super fight, he's probably losing up until the point he finds the finish, and that's a big red flag for me. On the Lucas Alexander side, he took a short notice opportunity against Joe Anderson Brito to get his UFC debut, and he ended up losing that fight by decision, but I don't think that fight is a good tell of how good he could actually be. He's a great kicker and a very slick striker with the way that he traverses the cage and uses his straight shots down the pipe. He has a mean calf kick as well, which debilitates opponents, allowing him to open up with the rest of his striking arsenal, causing which usually is because his opponents are starting to slow down. He put together a five-fight winning streak, including a win over Jacob Kilburn, uh, which got him this opportunity in the UFC in the first place. And although that fight with Kilburn was a loss via finish or via injury, uh, it was one of Alexander's kicks to the forearm of Kilburn, which caused that injury to happen. But even leading up to that, uh, that injury, Alexander was doing a great job throughout that fight and picking him apart and clearly winning that matchup. That's the best Luke Alexander that we can expect. A guy that can stop takedowns, keep fights on the on the feet, and just pick his opponent apart with his speed and his precision striking. That's what I can't wait to see this weekend now that he has a full training camp to prepare for this next matchup. I was kind of surprised to see Lucas Alexander as an underdog in this matchup, but I think a lot of people are putting a lot of weight on that fight with Joe Anderson Brito, thinking that, oh, this is that all this guy has. He's going to go out there. If he can't get that quick win, he's going to get out grappled and eventually finish. But like Steven Peterson doesn't present those types of issues. Steven Peterson is tough. He's gritty. But technically speaking, I think he's going to get outstruck here. We saw Lucas Alexander touch up a guy like Jacob Kilburn, who is somewhat comparable to Steven Peterson in terms of uh, level of skill and level of talent. And we saw Lucas Alexander just absolutely touch him up. Even before he broke his arm, he was still winning that fight relatively easily. I expect the speed, slick striking, and calf kicking game of Lucas Alexander to come through in this matchup and get his hand raised, pulling off the upset and winning it. He... Steven Peterson is tough to put away. So I'm going to go Lucas Alexander by decision. Next up in the featherweight division, we got 27 and 14 Daniel Pineda going up against 12 and 2 Tucker Lutz. Starting off on Daniel Pineda, he is coming off a no contest against Andre Feely in a fight that looked like he was honestly going to lose considering how many times he got hurt in that fight. But it was ultimately an unintentional eye poke from Andre Feely that rendered Daniel Pineda defenseless, which which allowed him to not continue that fight and caused that fight to be stopped and eventually be resulted in a no contest. The fight before that, he got knocked out by Cobb Swanson, and that was the first loss that he took in the UFC, at least in this iteration of his UFC career. But before that, he actually pulled off an upset victory over Herbert Burns, where he was able to deal with that early onslaught and eventually come back and get the knockout victory of his own. Daniel Pineda is a complete wild man. This guy goes out there and always has absolute wars with his opponents. And out of the 44 fights that he's had in his career, only thir- or sorry, yeah, only five of them have fi- uh, gone to a decision. He's finished 39 of his fights either by getting finished himself or going out on his shield. And that's the type of fighter that he has, even at 37 years old. We know that's what we're going to expect from him, and that's what we'll always see. He's a big striker in terms of just throwing a lot of looping hooks and looking to knock out his opponent, and he has a very aggressive BJJ game that he can implement either when he club and subs his opponent or even off of his back. 
but his gas tank a little bit questionable, which is why opponents have been able to finish him later on in their matchups. It really did seem like he was starting to slow down against Andre Feely, and I think he got bailed out by that eye poke, but that's not to say that he legitimately could not see through that eye considering how bad of an eye poke it was. So I don't want to say that he you know, avoided a loss by going out with a a no contest. You're you're talking about a guy that has been finished in so many of his fights and has gotten finishes of his own in so many fights that he'll likely always believe that he can go out there and get the win and never relies on the judges' scorecards. Switching on over to the Tucker Lutz side of things, another fighter that's been out of the cage for an extended period of time. Last time around, we saw him lose his second UFC fight against Pat Sabatini. That was a very close fight in terms of odds pre-fight, but Pat Sabatini's wrestling was a lot better than people were expecting, allowing him to get that fight to the ground often enough that he can control Lutz for the majority of that fight and get his hand raised by decision. Let's give some credit to Lutz, though, in terms of not getting submitted by a high-level BJJ black belt like Pat Sabatini, especially considering the amount of time that Sabatini enjoyed on the back of Tucker Lutz. But Tucker, solid wrestler in his own right, very good striker. He's a power striker, but he throws in combinations and he throws shots down the middle. Not a lot of winging shots. And I like the fact that he throws a lot of kicks as well. He's one of the better fighters in terms of blending his striking behind his takedowns. And I think that's very helpful for him, especially at this level. I wish he's been a little bit more active, but he's only 28 years old, so there's plenty of time for him to go out there, garner more experience, start to sharpen up those tools a little bit more, and work his way up the rankings in this featherweight division. But there's still a lot of work to do, a lot more activity that needs to be had, but I think that Tucker Lutz still has some good potential even after taking his first loss in his last matchup. One thing is almost certain with every Daniel Pineda fight is is that likely it will finish inside the distance. So my favorite prediction right off the bat is going to be this fight to not go to decision. But I'm going to lean with a younger, faster, more explosive uh, Tucker Lutz in this spot. And I think he's going to come back with a vengeance, especially with him picking picking up uh, his first UFC loss last time around. I think his combination striking, his speed, and his explosiveness will eventually be able to find that chin of Daniel Pineda. That should be able to put him down. And I think he'll be able to follow up with big strikes to put him out via ground and pound. Kicking off the main card, we have a middleweight matchup here between 22-8 and Chidi Njokwani going up against 15-4 and Albert Durayev. Now Chidi Njokwani is coming off his first UFC loss when he went to war against Gregory Rodriguez but ultimately could not put him away in that first round and got finished himself in that second round. But we saw some great things from him in his first UFC, two UFC fights where he fended off a takedown heavy approach from Todorovic and eventually knocked him out. In the Barrio fight, he quickly knocked out Barrio. I think that fight took less than 15 seconds, if I remember correctly. But that just showcases how powerful of a striker he is and how much we have to worry about his lanky Muay Thai style that he brings to the cage. I used to give him a little bit too much flack for his lack of activity and lack of knowledge in the clinch situations, especially when opponents are able to push him against the cage and he really just didn't know how to dig under hooks or get out of those bad positions, which is why he lost a couple fights before coming to the UFC. But we see a lot of improvements in him now that he's at the UFC stage, especially in that Todorovic fight where he did a great job of fending off the takedowns and doing a good enough job in the clinch positions to eventually get back out into distance where he was able to deliver on that knockout opportunity. I still think he has some good wins left in him at the UFC level, even at 34 years old, especially considering the amount of power that he carries in his distance striking style and his improving takedown defense as well. Flipping on over to the Durayev side, who's coming off of a TKO doctor stoppage loss in his last matchup after he ate a nice shot straight to the eye from Joaquin Buckley, and that caused the eye to swell up almost immediately. And at the end of the round, the doctor was forced to stop the fight as Durayev could not see out of the eye at all. But that wouldn't have changed anything as Buckley did a great job of stuffing the takedowns and putting the heat on Derive with his striking and power striking style and Derive had nothing for it. I really expected a lot of big things from Derive after his contender series matchup that earned him his contract to the UFC back in 2021 and I really thought that we were in for a Hamzat 2.0 situation considering that he asked for a fight almost immediately after he got his contract. The UFC obliged but he had a very hard-fought victory or a victory over Roman Kopilov a month and a half later, and I think a lot of people saw his ceiling after that. 
I had Durayev as a lock of the night play going into that Kopilov fight. And I, or it was either a lock of the night play or I had him tied to a lot of parlays. But I remember sweating that out when I went to the judges' scorecards, considering I expected Durayev to have more success with the ground damage that he was hopefully able to inflict, but just could not get off on enough of it. Luckily, he was able to continuously get that fight to the ground, even through the striking success that Kopilov was having in that matchup. But in the Buckley fight, we saw what happens when Durayev is not able to get fights to the ground and when his opponents have a striking advantage over him. He almost has no answer for it and almost looks like a deer in headlights, which is a big red flag for me, especially with a guy with such a highly touted grappling game. It's safe to say, if he's unable to get fights to the ground, you better be sweating it if you have any money invested on Albert Durayev. This one is a tough one to call because I think that a lot of people are very low on Derive right now because of that performance against Joaquin Buckley. And this is a fight that he could potentially drag to the mat and do what he does best. But like I said in the Chidi Njikwani background, I've been impressed with Njikwani's ability to do better in those defensive grappling situations. I have no doubt that he'll eventually find himself on his butt at a certain point in this matchup, but I think he'll be able to work back to his feet, utilize his superior striking, maintain that distance, using his teep kick up the middle to keep derive at distance, and then follow up with big shots from the outside. When these guys get uh, engaged in the clinch and start training some dirty boxing there, I think we'll see those big elbows from Chidi and Jaquani come through once again, and that could potentially put uh, derive out. I'm just not so privy on taking chalk on a guy like Andrew Kwani, who, you know, again, I think he is improving in the defensive grappling aspect, but to, you know, fade a, a wrestler like Derive, no matter how bad he looked in his last fight, especially with the minus money on the guy who is the striker, I just don't think that's the best way to go about it. I think taking Derive as an underdog, not a bad idea, especially if you're still able to get that plus 130, plus 140 that I saw him at. But the fight doesn't go to decision. It's probably going to be the best way to go about this. Either Derive smashes him from on top when he's able to get the takedowns or Njikwani finds that opening in the striking room and puts Derive away there. So fight doesn't go to decision. My favorite prediction for this matchup, but I'm going to go with Chidi Njikwani to get his hand raised by knockout. Heading down to the third and final flyweight matchup we have on this card, we got 24-7 and Alex Perez going up against 18-6 and Manal Kopp. Now, starting off on the Alex Perez side, he has been very inactive during this COVID era as this is going to be his fourth fight in the last three years. His first fight in the COVID era was a beautiful calf-kicking type knockout victory over Jussier Formiga and that earned him a title shot against Davison Figueiredo. Unfortunately, Perez found himself in a deep guillotine choke in the beginning portions of that matchup, which forced the tap out of him. In the Alexandre Pantoja fight, they both went to war for the first 30 seconds before Pantoja was able to secure that back position and eventually get the rear naked choke victory. Perez has been a far cry from what a lot of people feared of him, even going into the Davison Figueiredo fight. Perez, very strong wrestling and had an improving striking game, but it was his ability to constantly get his opponents to the mat, do damage from on top, or look for a finish from those from those positions. I just don't know what to expect from him considering all the late dropouts that he's had, the weight misses, just all of the out-of-cage factors that have gone into his career over the last three years. I think that he is still capable of high-level performances, especially considering that he's only 30 years old, but I feel like we need to see them in the cage first before we can go out there and have a ton of confidence in him. On the Manel Cap side, it is a complete opposite of what Alex Perez is dealing with as Cap is actually running a three-fight winning streak after losing his first two fights with the promotion. He's knocked out Ode Osborne and Zagas Zumagulov and then picked up a dominant decision victory over David Dvorak last time out. Cap seemed a little bit stuck in mud and sand in his first two UFC matchups, but is really starting to come into his own in the latter half of his UFC career. He has a very vicious striking and good timing on his opportunities to close a distance and let go of his strikes, as well as his, as well as his speed advantage that he normally enjoys. That's usually very difficult for opponents to get a beat on. His ground game could still use a little bit of work as opponents have had success by getting on top of him, but he's always done a good job of remaining patient and waiting for that opportunity to either latch onto a Kimura or just find that opportunity or that opening that he needs to eventually get back to his feet. Luckily for him, he does enough damage on the feet that the judges still see it in his favor should he not uh, get enough time on the feet. But 
It's still a red flag and a question mark as he continues to take steps up in competition. We can all agree that Alexandre Pantoja and Matias Nicolau are much better than the three fighters that Manel Kapp has beaten, but this weekend, Kapp will have an opportunity to defeat one of the higher-ranked flyweights and assert himself in that top five of the division. This is another one I'm kind of skeptical about because we just can't completely write off Alex Perez yet. He has a good enough wrestling game to always be live in matchups, and we've seen some flaws in Kapp's defensive grappling game that a guy like Alex Perez should be able to take full advantage of if he is mentally all there. And that's my big question mark about him. Going through everything that he went through over the last three years, the pullouts, everything that I mentioned before, I just can't fully uh, sit there and, and be comfortable investing in a guy like Alex Perez. As an underdog, I get it. He he deserves to be the side here considering all the tools that he has. But we just need to see him go out there and get his confidence back. And against a guy like Manel Cap, who's at a sky-high uh, level in terms of confidence since coming into the UFC, riding this 3-5 winning streak, I could see him easily traversing the cage, landing the big shots that will demoralize Alex Perez. And I wouldn't even be surprised if he ended up getting the finish, which is what it's going to be my official prediction here. I think that we'll see Perez have some success, but I think eventually Cap is going to just completely uh, touch him up on the feet, utilize his speed, utilize his movement, and eventually find that button and put him away here. So official prediction, I'm going to go Manal Cap by knockout. Heading over to the women's flyweight division, we got 13-6 Andrea KGB Lee going up against 11-2 Macy the Future Barber. Starting off on the Andrea Lee side, she's coming off a probably one of the worst performances of her career, if I'm being honest, when she lost a decision to Viviani Arujo. And there were complete polar opposites between her last performance and her last win right before that, where she battered Cynthia Calvillo over 10 minutes and was able to get the doctor stoppage in between rounds. She showcased very good slick striking and that allowed her to see the inevitable takedowns that were coming from the Cynthia Calvillo side, which allowed her to keep this fight in the striking realm and just batter her to pieces with combination striking and just being in a complete flow state. However, in the Arujo fight, it seemed like the power and the willingness to exchange from Arujo seemed to frustrate Andrea Lee and eventually break her. Arujo was uh, then able to get the fight to the ground where she had tremendous success from on top from landing damage and just controlling Andrea Lee from that top position. Takedowns after that seemed to come even easier to Arujo as Andrea Lee almost had no answer for anything that Arujo was throwing her way. When at her best, she looks like the Cynthia Calvio fight. And even in parts, the Antonina Shevchenko fight, although I think she just had way big of a, or way too big of a grappling advantage over Shevchenko, which is why she was able to be so dominant in that matchup. But when she is at her best, she's able to use her striking and just stay at distance, utilizing combinations and emphasizing a lot of those combinations by ending with the leg kick. But if she can't get into that flow state, that's where she starts to question herself and we end up getting a result like the Viviani Araujo fight. On the flip side, for Macy Barber, she's on a three-fight winning streak, but let's be it, if you know, you know, she should probably be on a two-fight winning streak. But since joining the guys over at Team Alpha Male, we've been seeing great improvements from Macy Barber, especially from changing her game from just being a pretty much a striking-style fighter with a lot of big shots from the outside and utilizing her explosiveness to a grindy fighter who uses her strength and her size and her power to overwhelm opponents in the clinch where she's able to push them up against the cage do some damage with her knees elbows and punches and maybe even land takedowns if she's able to get there but for the most part she does a great job of just controlling her opponents in those positions and utilizing her strength not just for her explosiveness but using it to stifle opponents and keep them static and i would think we saw all of that in the De La rosa fight and even the jessica i fight even with that you know sketchy second round where barber was struggling to get back to her feet but i think that we're going to continue to see improvements from her she's only 24 years old and the more she gets comfortable with those alpha male guys i fully expect her to continue to showcase improvements in the grappling and the clinching realms and as she keeps getting stronger as well i think it's going to get harder and harder for women to get out of those bad positions but again she let's not overlook her striking style which is still very difficult for a lot of opponents to deal with especially with the power that she cracks and especially when she's able to counter opponents once they start getting into their flow state 
I think this is another great fight for Macy Barber to go out there and utilize her strength and her grappling that I kept alluding to. You know, she'll have a little bit of uh, worry to deal with at the beginning of this while Andrea Lee decides whether she's going to be able to get into her groove or not. And then when Macy Barber keeps meeting her with power and with explosiveness, I think that will start to deter Lee. And then I think that's when we start getting these clinch situations where Barber can rough her up against the cage, maybe land a couple takedowns and do some good work from on top. It's very pivotal, pivotal, though, pivotal, <laughs> pivotal that Barber asserts herself early, though, because if Andrea Lee gets into that flow state, then it's going to be very hard to stop that train. The main thing here is ensuring that she counters every time Andrea Lee is in the middle of a combination, because that will deter Lee from throwing combinations and that will slowly start to break her, just as we saw in the Viviania Araujo fight. So I'm going to go Macy Barber here, feeling pretty good about it as well, and I expect her to go out there and grind out Andrea Lee en route to a decision victory. We have a banger of a featherweight matchup positioned perfectly on this main card between 16-4 and four, Nate Landwehr going up against 9-1 and one, Austin Lingo. This is a tremendous fight and Nate Landwehr is usually the ingredient for a tremendous fight. And I think that the UFC learned their lesson by putting Nate Landwehr in a primetime spot in front of a sold-out crowd in San Diego last time around when he went to a decision against David Onama but brought the heat the entire time. He went into that fight as a pretty big underdog as a lot of people expected David Onama to hurt Nate Landwehr and put him away. He did the first part of that. He was unable to do the second part of that as Landwehr showcased his durability, came back and continued to control that fight in the second and third rounds by marching down Onama, hurting him numerous times and taking advantage of the fact that Onama's gas tank was on empty. That's Nate Landwehr at his best. He continuously puts pressure on his opponents, moving forward, throwing reckless abandon with his striking, maybe mixing in, mixing in a takedown or two, but he utilizes that nonstop Energizer Bunny energy so that he can go out there and just break his opponents and eventually finish them. However, I think at 34 years old against opponents that will likely be able to use that aggressiveness against him, he'll end up coming short against those fighters. He leaves a lot of openings with his striking and he gets a little bit too overzealous in the grappling realm. But I do think he has a very good wrestling game, which could get him out of bad positions. It's just his recklessness is a little bit too much for me at times, which is why guys like Julian Arosa and Herbert Burns were able to take advantage of him. Austin Lingo was scheduled to fight Hikaru Hamosh a couple weeks ago, but Hamosh egregiously missed weight by over eight pounds, and that caused the fight to get scrapped. And Austin Lingo was quickly booked against Nate Landwehr, who was looking for an opponent for this card as well. It's been a while since we've seen Austin Lingo in the cage, and actually, the last time he was in the cage was when I was actually at the Apex when he took on Luis Saldana on that Cannoneer versus Gasolum card. That was August of 2021, so it's been well over a year and a half since he's seen action, but he is a solid veteran. He's been getting in good training at Fortis MMA, and I fully expect him to be game and 100% when he comes into the fight this weekend. He is a slick boxer with good striking combinations and really crashes the pocket well to get off his strikes, and he showcases he has a lot of finishing power and prowess, especially with the regional run that he was on before making it to the UFC. I think he has a handful of sub 30 second finishes, which just showcases how dangerous he could be. But I think he learned a lot from his UFC debut loss to Yusuf Zalal, which Zalal was able to just put together a much better overall game. But he showcased what he is good at. He has good durability and great striking in the Jacob Kilburn and Luis Saldana fights as he was down, you know, I'd say pretty bad in that first round against Saldana, but then marched him down in the second and third rounds, getting off on his offense, and that was enough for him to get his hand raised by decision. I love that he trains with the guys over there at Fortis MMA and Safe Sayud utilizes this guy's advantages very well in fights. You know, I think he's limited in a large part of the other parts of his game, but his ability to just march opponents down and use his power striking style and having a guy like Save Sayud at the controls, you know, is going to be very difficult for a lot of opponents to come out, uh, out on top. Unless they have a significant grappling advantage, I think Lingo will always be the one on the front foot and doing damage with his boxing combinations. 
I was somewhat surprised to see Austin Lingo as such a big underdog in this matchup, but that's just the reality of the betting game. A lot of people just get so high on another guy, uh, even if he was a giant underdog like Nate Landro was in his last fight, if he goes out there and springs the upset, he's going to come back and he's going to be a big favorite depending on the stylistic matchup that he gets. Austin Lingo just hasn't been around long enough to get that respect of the UFC public, even though he came in, I believe, as an underdog to Luis Saldana. That fight was in August of 2021. And the, you know, betting public usually has a very short memory uh, or a window of memory. And I think that Lingo's boxing style is going to be perfect for him here to stay safe when he crashes the pocket against Landwehr or when Landwehr decides to crash the pocket with his wild striking style. And that will open up countering opportunities for Austin Lingo to land that power on him and eventually find that knockout. So... Moneyline, already great. Lingo by knockout, already great as well. Fight doesn't go to decision would be a proper spot to target as well. But I think that Lingo is a way liver underdog than these under uh, these odds are indicating. And I'm going to go with Austin Lingo to win by knockout. The co-main event takes place in the women's bantamweight division as we have Holly Holm coming in with a 14-6 and record going up against Yana Santos who comes in with an identical 14-6 and record. Starting off on the Holly Holmes side, she's coming off a loss, a very close loss, I must say, to Caitlin Vieira last time around. And I think that ruffled the feathers of Holly Holm quite a lot, especially considering that she was really starting to build some momentum after getting knocked out by Amanda Nunes a couple years back. She put together two straight wins over Raquel Pennington and Irene Aldana, and that third win over Caitlin Vieira would have been great for her, especially at her age of 41 years old. But Holly Holm has very much evolved since making her UFC debut. She was known as that point-striking style of just staying on the outside and eyeing from distance, trying to get off her uh, output and her volume, and really touching up opponents with her boxing and kickboxing background. A lot of opponents found issue with that and were just unable to get a beat on her, ultimately losing more often than not uh, about against those uh, opponents. But... At the latter half of her career, at least the last couple fights, we've been seeing her utilize more of a grapple-heavy approach. She's a very physically fit woman, and she has been using that as a sense of motivation throughout her career, which is why you always see her in just tremendous shape every time she takes the cage, or every time she takes center stage. Uh, with uh, you know USADA around as well, she's been one of the most tested women in the UFC, and she has yet to fail any of her drug tests, so you got to believe that she's just been a lifelong athlete and that just showcases in her performance and the fact that her health has always seemed, seemed to be top-notch. But the big part of her athleticism that she has been relying on is the strength. She's a very strong woman and she's been able to hold a lot of opponents up against the cage, drag them to the mat and have good sense of top control. That takes away from her ability to land damage as she seems to be more so intent on controlling her opponents than actually letting uh, offense go. But opponents, more often than not, are, are unable to keep up with her strength and deal with that uh, just that rugged, grindy style that she's bringing to the cage more often than not. At 41 years old, I would usually be apprehensive about having confidence in a fighter, but Holly Holm is an exception to that rule as just, like I said, her physical nature and the fact that she has a lot of high-level experience under her belt. I think she just she's transitioned very well in terms of this stage of her career and knowing that she won't have the reflexes and speed that she used to have by implementing her striking approach. So let's just get this into a safer realm where she's able to control opponents and just keep them stifled and up against the cage or dragged to the mat and just control them from that top position. On the flip side for Yana Santos, formerly known as Yana Kunitskaya, she had a lot of life-changing and altering things happen to her over the last year and a half that she's been out of competition. For one, she got married to UFC fighter or former UFC fighter Tiago Santos and actually had a baby with him as well. And now this will be her first fight back after giving birth. Gotta wonder how much of an impact that will have on her, especially coming in and not taking a slouch either in terms of fighting a high-level fighter like Holly Holm. Yana Santos has had a decent overall game. Her striking is not too bad, her grappling not too bad either. And we've seen her win fights with her striking in the past, and we've seen her win fights with her grappling in the past. I just don't know if she has what it takes to truly be a top five contender in this bantamweight division. 
also again adding in the x factor of everything going on in her personal life over over the last year and a half i wonder what her motivation is like obviously it's going to be sky high to try to you know provide for her family and her newborn child but i just mean like does she does she have the opportunity to get up early and train and train as hard as she used to while she's still looking after her child? Uh, and that's a big question mark that I have going into this matchup. And even just skill-wise, I, I think that she's going to struggle in this fight against a high-level opponent like Holly Holm. But curious to see. I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. I just don't know if she has what it takes with or without everything that she went through to be competitive at the highest level in the women's bantamweight division. I think we're in store for another veteran performance here from Holly Holm. I think that this is a perfect matchup for her to go out there, grind up against Yana, up against the cage, utilize her superior strength and power, drag this fight to the ground and do some good work from on top. You got to wonder, like I said, I kept alluding to it in Santos's uh, background here that who knows what these effects of having a child are going to have on her and just jumping right into the deep end of the pool against a veteran like Holly Holm, not the best spot for her. So I don't expect Yana to outstrike Holly Holm. And even if she is having some success in that striking realm, I don't think it will be that long before we see Holly Holm close that gap, grab a hold of Yana and start to overpower her, beat her up with some dirty boxing, drag this fight to the ground and have some success from that top opposition again 41 years old usually a red flag for a lot of people but given how fit how healthy and how physically in shape holly Holm has been throughout her career that has helped her longevity in the in her career and we know a big part of women's mma usually comes down to the strength advantage of a fighter and i think that's going to be on full display here i think we'll see holly Holm have a lot of success winning this fight just as she won her past couple fights by cage clinching clinching and grappling holly Holm by decision Time for the main event, which goes down in the men's bantamweight division. And I think the UFC did a tremendous job in terms of rescheduling this from taking place in the Apex and putting it in front of a live crowd down there in San Antonio. We got 22-7-1 streaking Marlon Vera going up against 15-4 Corey Sandhagen. Marlon Vera is currently riding a four-fight winning streak with two of those victories coming via knockout. Last time around, he was also in front of another sold-out crowd in San Diego when he put away former bantamweight king Dominic Cruz. I think that this is a, another solid step up in competition for him to try to stake a claim to a title shot which, is, which has eluded him over his last couple fights. His last loss came to the legendary Jose Aldo via decision in a somewhat close fight and ultimately Aldo was able to run away with that fight in the third round by getting the back of Marlon Vera and riding that matchup out. I've long been a detractor of Marlon Vera thinking that he just you know he's just getting lucky every now and then but he has legitimate skill and I'm willing to give him his flowers at this point but I still wonder how he does against guys that one have good cardio and can keep up with him and two are not susceptible to getting knocked down or knocked out like uh, you know Dominic Cruz, Rob Font and Frankie Edgar have been over the last couple fights. You know Dominic Cruz showed off great work in the first two rounds and the third round went to Marlon Vera, but there was still an opportunity for Dominic Cruz to win this last round and still take home a decision victory until he ran straight into a beautiful head kick from Marlon Vera. Again, these things are not luck. It's obvious that Marlon Vera has set these things up and just as planting traps and waiting for an opportunity to spring those traps and I think that he still has some solid amount of skill but his lack of output at times uh, his slow starting nature all of these usually work against him not to mention guys are able to have success against him on the ground as he does throw up submissions off of his back however I just don't know how effective they are and the fact that he hasn't gotten a submission over the last couple of fights you know I'm, I'm considering and wondering how dangerous he is actually off of his back but the most dangerous aspect of his game is how he weaponizes his cardio. He doesn't mind having a slow start early in fights because he knows that he can start to take over later when his opponents have kind of shown their hand, showed him their tendencies, and then he starts to take advantage from that. You know, the Rob Font fight, I'd say he was losing 80% of that fight. 80% of those 25 minutes was all Rob Font, but it was just Marlon Vera landing those critical shots in the dying seconds of a couple of those rounds, which eventually got his hand raised via decision. But we see where he can come up short. When guys can put volume on him, when guys can keep him on his back foot, and guys can keep him thinking with takedowns and striking blended together very well. 
On the flip side for Corey Sandhagen, he's coming off a victory over Song Yudong uh, in a fight that was stopped due to via a, a cut. But I really think that should that fight have gone the distance anyway, since it was stopped right before the fifth round, he probably still would have gotten his hand raised. He's so fluid from the outside with his unorthodox striking style and has a very solid understanding of how to weaponize his cardio as well by what he showcased in the Song Yudong fight. He's done it in the past as well where he wears on opponents early and really starts to put his foot on the gas the later that fights go. Uh, he's been talked about for uh, several years now with how good of a fighter he is and he's come up short on a, a couple uh, high-level spots, especially that interim title fight that he had against Piotr Jan back at UFC 267. But uh, I still think he's capable of getting back into the title picture and possibly getting another title shot, especially if he can put together another win or two, most critically, this weekend. But I think he's a very high-level fighter still, getting high-level training with guys like Rafion Stotts and Drew Dober and, you know, d- taking a, not a nomadic approach to training now. Obviously, he still trains mainly out of Denver, but... Uh, I th- I love that he's changing things up and trying to get different looks, training with guys like Ryan Hall and just rounding out the rest of his game. He's a very solid fighter, and I think that he has a tremendous amount of potential still. And I think with his output, his cardio, and his improving ground game, he's going to be a threat that a lot of people need to worry about. This one is a tough one to call a little bit because, again, I don't know if... Uh, like, I'm trying to take all my bias of Marlon Vera out of the picture here which I feel like I do a pretty good job of doing uh, but I think that Corey Sandhagen is the best puzzle for Vera since he's been on this winning streak this is a guy that can keep up with the cardio of Marlon Vera and this is a guy that can go out there and put output and a full MMA game together that might stifle that game of, of Vera you know Vera could start to come on late in this fight but I think that Sandhagen is defensively responsible enough that he should be able to stay away from the big strikes and you know tie him up if he needs to get this into the clinch realm if he needs to but I think he's skilled enough from the distance striking where he can get off his own game while having uh, you know good amount of success and seeing uh, allowing the judges to see it in his favor you know I don't think he's going to slow down as past opponents have had uh, issues with against Marlon Vera and I really think that this is a great fight for Rivera to, or sorry, for for Sanhagen to get that output off, to get that volume off, and that should be enough for him to eventually get his hand raised in the spot. Again, Vera's a good fighter, but there are certain holes in his game, like his lack of output at at times, his slow start, uh, defensively grappling. I think he's shown some holes, and I think that we'll see Corey Sandhagen take advantage of all those flaws in his game. And Paige, uh, you know, he might drop a round or two here, but I think he ends up winning this fight by decision. And that's a wrap on the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode as always. I got a ton of content dropping this week on the Patreon, not to mention four regional events. Like I said at the top of the show, breakdowns have already started to drop for them. So make sure you guys keep your eyes peeled for that. And Bellator 292 breakdowns will be dropping a little later on this week on the Patreon. Check that out. Speaking of Bellator, no UFC the following week. So Bellator 292 MMA Lockcast will be dropping as normal for the Lockcast, which is going to be Monday uh, afternoon, Monday noon Eastern on Fight Week. Again, no UFC, so Bellator will take its place. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Not to mention, we also have the first PFL uh, of their, you know, their flagship PFL show, April. Uh, and I'll be dropping breakdowns for that on the Patreon, as well as the double header for CFFC. They have two shows the following weekend, back to back on the same weekend. All those breakdowns on the Patreon link in the description below. Appreciate all the love and support as always. I'll be back later this week once again to drop the Locky Trinity as well as the three best prop bets all for UFC San Antonio. Keep your eyes peeled. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Drop that like, drop a comment, drop a subscribe if you haven't already. And I'll see you guys later on this week. Peace.